know Marissa just prayed, but I just want to pray again before we get started. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will meet with us, that your, it will be your words and not my words that are spoken. Uh, we're starting a new series about you, and we want you to be the, prime, the primary instructor because we need to learn from you. We need to listen to you. Forgive us for sometimes talking so much we don't stop and hear you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you will fill this place, that you will fill our hearts and our lives, that we will sense your presence, and we will be moved by your glory. And I pray these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Well, it's that time of year again. You know the time of year I'm talking about where empty storefronts all across the country magically transform into spirit Halloweens. The costume store, you see this happen, right? You're like, I thought that building was condemned. Boom, suddenly it's a spirit Halloween. Like, how did this happen? The magic of Halloween, you know? Um, and that word comes up a lot at this time of year. Not abandoned buildings, but spirit. The word spirit, you hear a lot. You hear about specters and ghosts and spirits. But it's not just in the novelty costume industry that the word spirit is used a lot. The Bible uses the word spirit a lot. Two, in fact, hundreds of times, just in the New Testament alone, the word spirit is used 105 times in the Gospels, 69 times in the book of Acts, 161 times in the letters of Paul, and 50 times in other places in the New Testament. So it's all over this place. Spirit is mentioned not just in Halloween, all throughout the Bible. And the churches I grew up in, though, nobody ever really talked about the Holy Spirit. It just really didn't come up. The Holy Spirit was uh, maybe mentioned during communion, when they're like, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or during, uh, or sorry, during a baptism, or sometimes during a communion, they're like, do this in remembrance of me, and we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But besides that, he seemed a little bit like the weird uncle that nobody mentioned. You know, everybody has that one weird uncle. You're like, my uncle taxidermy squirrels into, you know, weird poses, and so nobody really mentions him because he's kind of weird. But, you know, you go to a family reunion, you're like, where is Uncle Bob? And, you know, the, like, the only time he comes up is like when you have to mention him. That's kind of how it felt like growing up in church. The Holy Spirit was rarely mentioned, and when he was, it was usually just like a kind of one-off mention, and he didn't feel like a vibrant, everyday part of our services or especially our everyday lives. Uh, when my family first converted to Christianity, we really didn't know much. My dad had gone to a Russian Orthodox a little bit as a kid. Um, my mom had gone to a Christian Missionary Alliance church a little bit as a kid. But by the time they were in their 20s and they had my sister and I and made this profession of faith and started attending churches, they were really learning Christianity for the first time. Um, one of the things we were taught when we were early in our faith was the Westminster Confession. It's this beautiful ancient confession of faith about the core beliefs of Christianity, and it's great. It's a great thing to learn. I encourage you to look at it. It's a great list of some of the core beliefs of Christianity, but if you read through it, there's nothing about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even come up. It's like, oh yeah, that's unnecessary, not needed, right? That's not a foundational. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a foundational truth if you look at some of our churches and some of our confessions. When my family first started attending church, we had a neighbor across the street who was like, oh, you guys have become Christians? That's great. We're Christians. You should come visit our church. And so we drove all the way across town to visit their church, 
And uh, it didn't take me very long to realize this was a very different church than the one we had been going to because they played 15 songs before the guy even got up to speak. I was like, this service isn't going to be nine hours long. You know, like, what is happening? But there was also something very different than the churches we were going to because when they played music, people, like, as soon as that first note starts, they started getting up and running up and down the aisles. They're just running back and forth. I'm like, what is happening? And then there's this one woman who got down front every time the song started, and she started just doing the chicken dance. She was going... Praise the Lord, you know, and she's just going back and forth. And I thought, I've only been in church a few months. I have no idea what's happening. And so I leaned over to my neighbor and I said, what is happening? And he looks over at me, completely deadpan, and he goes, the Holy Spirit. And then he just turned back like, that explained it, you know. And so I remember at that young age thinking, the Holy Spirit is something dangerous. He's something I need to be cautious about. He's something that could make you do something ridiculous and humiliating in front of people, like doing a chicken dance or taking off running back and forth. And so I needed to be guarded, and I needed to be careful about this. I needed to make sure that it could be, the spirit could only be something that I used in small doses, and it could be controlled, and it I could be experienced on my terms. And quite honestly, that thinking fit well with the churches I was attending, because they rarely mentioned him. He rarely came up. He didn't seem to have any part of anything we were doing. And so it really didn't bother my spiritual life much. I learned a lot about the Bible. I became a great student of the Bible. And every class and small group I went to, people were like, he knows his Bible so well. But the Spirit was all but forgotten. And I think that you could know everything about the Bible, but if the Spirit isn't a major part of your Christian life, you're missing most of what it means to be a Christian. And for me, the Spirit was almost completely absent from my life until I reached college. And then I realized you can have religion without the Spirit, but you cannot become a person of peace or an agent of love without the divine Spirit of God living in you, empowering you, and guiding you. The Holy Spirit is essential for the Christian life. Ignoring him and learning everything there is to know about the Bible, learning all the doctrines and all the theology, having all the knowledge will not produce transformation. Becoming like Jesus, learning to live and love like he did, is a cooperative journey between you and the Holy Spirit. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the person of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be wrestling with our cultural baggage, our church baggage around the subject. We're going to explore the theology of the Holy Spirit and discuss how to practically live spirit-filled lives in our modern world. So, to get started today, what is a spirit? What is a Holy Spirit? Is that the same thing as a Holy Ghost? Um, Let's start at the beginning. A Samaritan woman encountered Jesus when he was on earth, and she asked him a relevant question, I think, for us today. She said, what does worship look like? In John 4, 21 through 24, Jesus meets this woman at the well. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. 
how many times has my worship been all the right boxes, all the right theological statements, but it has not been in the spirit. God is spirit, and he, his worshipers must worship in the spirit. Um, a good way to think about spirit is imagine the world as two realms, a physical realm and a spiritual realm, and they overlap. There are spiritual beings, and there are physical beings. You know how there are land animals, things like horses, um, and then there are sea creatures, um, things like dolphins, and then there are amphibians that can inhabit both worlds, you know, like a frog can live on the land or it can live in the water. Humans are amphibians, as it were. We live in both the physical and the spiritual world. Genesis 2-7, Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Humans have this unique combination of heaven and earth, of spirit and physical. We have bodies, but we also have this animating energy that simply defies biology. It's not just simply our bodies at work. There's something in us moving us. We have personalities. There's a reason when you're depressed, it affects your body. And when your body's un uh, unhealthy, it affects how you feel and think. We are spirits in bodies, and we touch both worlds at the same time. And this makes sense, because we were created to guide the physical world toward order and abundance like God did in the spiritual world. We were his representatives in the physical world, his rulers tasked with bringing out the fullness and the beauty in our world. Um, we often think of our soul as the inward essence of a person. This is very much a Western civilization idea that we think of like soul eaters. They're taking away your like inner person, right? They're stealing your soul. We talk about terms like saving souls or soul eaters. But in the Old Testament imagination, a soul was a total person. It's a spirit and a body, one soul. Like a soul was your whole integrated self, your body and your spirit, your physical and your spirit working together. And that's why we need a resurrection of our bodies. That's not why Jesus is like, guess what? You're going to get wings and a harp and be in the clouds forever. No, what's his promise? Just like I rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead too. You're a body, but you're not just a body. You're a spirit in a body. You need both. Half a cat is not a cat. It's a tail and two legs, right? Or in your case, Marissa, a tail and one leg. But um, is he missing, your cat missing his front leg or his back leg? Back leg, okay. I took a guess. But either way, it isn't a cat, right? And a body without a spirit isn't you. And a spirit without a body isn't fully you either. You need both. And that's the beauty of the Christian uh, faith that we're promised that our bodies and our spirits will be resurrected and restored. The promise of the Christian faith is not that your spirit with wings and a harp will play in a cloud palace forever. It's that a restored body and a renewed spirit will be united together forever, fully integrated, fully you, and you will live on a restored world. So what do the biblical authors mean when they say spirit? Because when we say spirit, we think of all kinds of things. We think of the spooky stuff at Halloween. We think of maybe some experiences we've had where people came down and danced in a service and or maybe where someone's like, hey, I've got a message from the spirit. Like all kinds of things come into our mind. But what do the biblical authors mean when they say spirit? Quite simply, spirit usually means wind or breath. 
And if you look at how the Old Testament word for spirit is used and how the New Testament word is used, it's almost always commonly used as breath. Take a breath in with me. Hold up your hand. That's your spirit at work. It's making your lungs breathe in and out. You're breathing in and out a breath. It's this living breath that keeps you alive. That's your spirit, the animating life force that moves your body. And when God breathed into the dust of the earth, he breathed out his living spirit into mankind, and we became living souls. So why does all this matter? You see, Alex, fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. It'll come up at the next dinner party, I'm sure, because everybody loves to talk about the etymology of spirit from the Bible, you know? If not, you're not hanging out at the right dinner parties. That's, the, that's what all the cool kids are talking about. Why it matters is because if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, we need to understand what the biblical authors meant by spirit, and we need to understand how our spirit relates to God's spirit. Some older translations of the Bible use the word ghost instead of spirit. This isn't a different idea. Um, you've probably heard songs referred to the Holy Ghost, or if you're reading out of King James, New King James, Many times it'll say Holy Ghost. This is just an older English synonym for spirit. Our cultural imagination makes ghosts sound like spooky things. Ghosts haunt places. They're ominous and dangerous. But the term simply means the exact same thing as spirit. It's the invisible breath that animates you, your inner person. You and I are ghosts in a shell. When someone dies, it used to be common to say they gave up the ghost. Their body is no longer carrying the ghosts, their spirit departed. While the Bible describes both evil and good spiritual beings at work in the physical world, the idea of human spirits lingering without bodies to haunt the living defies the biblical narrative. We don't see anywhere in scripture where there's these spooky ghosts like hanging around in places. Evil spirits may masquerade to scare or confuse, but human spirits are rushed into the presence of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, very clearly, if you are outside of your body, you're rushed into the presence of God. And for some of us, that will be a delight. And for some of us, we'll be like, oh crap, I can't run away from him anymore. And so when we say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, we are referencing <clears throat> not just any human spirit, nor just any spiritual being. We are referencing a member of the divine trinity, Holiness is a way of saying something is special or unique or set apart for a grand purpose. The Holy Spirit is unlike any other spiritual being because it refers to a member of the Trinity, Yahweh, the one true God. Now, we could do a separate series on the Trinity, and we could talk about it for years and years and years. You could take seminary classes on it literally for years and years and years. And theologians have written millions upon millions of words and spent much ink and paper trying to wrap their heads around it. And what usually happens when anyone tries to uh, describe the Trinity enough, they reach a point where they reach heresy because there's a mystery element to it. Like, if you try too hard to explain something mysterious, you eventually reach a point where you're saying things that aren't true anymore because sometimes there's just a mystery you have to come to terms with. As I've grown older, I've found it helpful to simply admit that sometimes we have to be okay with mystery. How is one God three persons? That math doesn't add up. And I'm like, yes, I hate math. God hates math too because one equals three somehow, you know? Um, all joking aside, 
there is a mysterious element to the Trinity. But since the very first days of Christianity, we have affirmed that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. That Yahweh is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit forever equal, three unique personalities, one divine being at the center of the universe. It's not cash or gold or treasure. At the center of the universe is not math or science or equations. At the center of the universe is a divine relationship of mutual love, respect, and unity. Sometimes people, when they think they're being really clever, they're like, well, what did God do before he created stuff? The Father loved the Son, who loved the Spirit, who loved the Son, who loved the Father, who loved the Son, who loved the Spirit, and they loved each other, and they dwelt in perfect harmony forever, infinity, infinity past. The God of the Bible was not creating servants or underlings. If you read ancient Sumerian or Babylonian stories about why God's created things, they're usually having these great wars, and they're like, we need more warriors, and so out of their blood, they made these servants, or that's very Babylonian, because it was all about warfare and fighting, and then, you know, the Egyptians and the Sumerians, they were like, the gods are lazy, and they need creatures who will serve them and do things for them, and that's why they create. The ancient Jewish tradition stands alone in the ancient world because it says God did not create to have people serve him or to have people fight for him. He created people to share out of his abundant richness, richness and beauty in the relationship he already had between the Father, Son, and Spirit. God said this love is too good to keep to ourselves. We're going to make more people to enjoy what we have. So the Holy Spirit is God, one person of the Trinity. Christian tradition says that the Holy Spirit is a person, not simply the will of God at work. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Spirit almost as if he is a force, a personality-like force at work in the world. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars. I love Star Wars, but that's not how the Holy Spirit works. You don't, in Star Wars, they always say, use the force. You don't use the Holy Spirit. He's a person. You don't use a person. You work alongside a person. You cooperate with the Spirit. You join him where he is working in the world. Because he's a person, he's not someone to be wielded or someone to be controlled. He's someone to get to know and work alongside with and to work with. The Bible says the Holy Spirit can be upset by our actions. Paul says, the heart of the Spirit can be grieved by the way we treat other people. Think about that. Sometimes the way I speak to my spouse hurts the heart of God who is dwelling in me. The Bible says that we can follow where the Spirit leads, that he prays for us, that he talks to the Father and Son about what is best for us, Jesus calls him an advocator and a comforter. He's fighting for us, just like the best legal team in the world. He's saying, look, they need this. They're going through some hard stuff. They need this strength. They need this blessing. They need this to come through. By the Spirit, we are convicted of the selfish, destructive things that we say and do and think, the things that hurt us and hurt others and hurt our world. I'm just going to tell you, most of the time I'm pretty... Um, completely mindless about the way I'm affecting other people. Like, I just walk through life in my little robotic state, and Darby's like, 
you realize when you said that you probably hurt that person's feelings. I'm like, they're fine, you know. I go along. I'm knocking stuff over I don't even notice because I'm just blindly going through the world. But there are times when days later, the spirit pricks my heart and I say, oh, I said that? Why did I say that? I didn't even give it another thought, but now you're bringing it up to my mind. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. By the spirit, we are drawn towards God. The Spirit makes us hungry and thirsty to know God. By the Spirit, we become like Christ. While we can model Jesus' behavior, and we should, that's how we cooperate with the Spirit, we can learn his teachings, we can put it into practice, we can develop good spiritual habits and formation. You know I believe in that. That's why we have spiritual formation groups. But the Spirit does the internal work of reworking the framework of our hearts. There's only so much we can do, and the Spirit does the heavy lifting. We need Him to change what we cannot. By the Spirit, we have the supernatural strength to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, and to go the extra mile. In my flesh, that is simply in my body, in my selfishness, I do not want to do those things, but the Spirit in me compels me to love those that I'd rather hate. And the Spirit guides and directs us about how to bring Jesus's kingdom about through our lives. And yet, despite all that, all that scripture says that the Spirit does, the Spirit seems all but forgotten in many of our American churches. We talk about the Father and the Son constantly, which is great, but the Spirit often falls to the wayside. We say we believe in the Trinity, and the churches I grew up in said, we believe in the Trinity. It's a doctrine. It's something we stand on. But when it came down to it, what they usually meant was they believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, not Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for the Bible. That's how we know these accounts of Jesus. This is how we encounter the living presence of God. But the Holy Scriptures are not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to encounter God through the Scriptures. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, argues that the evangelical church in America has acted like they don't need the Holy Spirit because we have so much education, we have so much money, and we have so many people, we aren't desperate for the supernatural power of the Spirit because we think we can run churches without Him. And when I read those words, I thought, yes, how often do I think I have the training, I have the skills, I have the equipment, I have the resources. I can do this even if nothing supernatural happens. But, Francis Chan argues in his book, when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. Could the decline in America of Christianity have less to do with how evil culture, culture is and more to do with how powerless our churches that claim to represent a resurrected dead man seem. Could our lack of supernatural power be the reason culture has said, there's nothing there for me. There's nothing there that matters or moves me. Church without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit can give you lots of good information. <clears throat> but it will never produce transformation. It will never change the world because it cannot change you and I. Our Sunday gatherings, 
can become weekly club gatherings about a shared interest in this ancient book instead of times of encountering a divine presence that puts a mark on us for the entire week so that everyone who meets us says there is a joy and there is a hope and there is a love in them that I want to. I need to be around them because there's something in them that I hunger and thirst for. How many times do we gather and we walk away bored? Not because the musicians weren't talented, not because the speaker wasn't eloquent or prepared, but because we did things on our own without God. And church is pointless. Church is stupid. Church is worthless unless God's spirit is here. We need the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise this is all physical and not spiritual. When the spirit is moving, no one goes away bored. No one thinks, what a waste of time. Our hearts are hungry for God. And stages and music and lights, even the best ones in the world can't feed that hunger. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit can. Uh, one of my Christian heroes is Eugene Peterson, who pastored a church in Baltimore. And it's just an ordinary urban church in the heart of Baltimore, just with ordinary everyday people, a few hundred people. It wasn't a huge church. Most people know him because he wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, the message. Um, but in, near the end of his life, he became good friends with Bono from U2. And Bono's been on a spiritual journey, and he started reading the message. And anyways, they got connected. And um, during one of their conversations, Bono had this great line. Religion is what happens when the spirit leaves the building. You can still have religion without the spirit. I don't want to just hold religious services at Horizon. I want to meet with the Holy Spirit. I want to be moved by him. I want to be empowered by him. I want to make, I want him to make me marvel at God. I don't want to bring interesting talks that don't have spirit power behind them. If they don't have the spirit's presence to drive them into your hearts, then I am wasting my breath. I don't want to sing beautiful songs that don't have the Spirit's presence to elevate our praise into the very throne room of God. We cannot do it. He can. And yet so often I try to do all things without him instead of remembering that I have been given him so that I can do all things through him because he gives me strength. And so as we end, I just want to pray to the Holy Spirit, and I hope that this prayer will become your prayer too. Holy Spirit, meet with us. Forgive us for wanting control so that we can do things without you. Holy Spirit, fill us. Forgive us for trying to do the supernatural without you. Forgive us for getting frustrated when we don't include you in the planning and then complaining when you don't bless what we decided to do without you. We don't want dead religion. We don't want Horizon to just be a place that gathers and talks about a shared interest in an ancient subject. We want it to be an encounter with the divine. Don't leave us with powerless meetings, with no sign of the supernatural. Surprise us, Spirit. We invite you to come. Do wonders for your glory.